what's some advice do you have for people who are like, you know what, I don't really get it because we have 100,000, 300,000 people here. Where do I start to understand, empower the relationships, the structure? As a leader, not every conversation is a transaction, not every conversation is a development, not every conversation is for you to solve something. Some conversations are not just listening, but they actually build a relationship. And that's what's gotten us through some of the hardest business challenges we've had, is I know I like this person. We've, we've seen each other at our best, at our worst, and, uh, and we can laugh about it. Hey there, this is Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Lead the Team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 2% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to another fun episode. I've got John D. Ryan, who is the CEO for United Health Vision, which is actually part of United Healthcare, one of the U.S.'s largest health and well-being companies, clocking in at over 380,000 employees. It's a company that serves over 25 million consumers in the commercial Medicare and Medicaid channels. Now, back to John, he previously served as an executive within UHC's National Accounts Division, managing its client management team, which serves over 500 national account employers, representing over 2 million covered lives. Now, before joining United Health Group, John served as a senior leader with Mercer HR Consulting and Watson Wyatt, now Willis Towers Watson. Now, John has a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy and English from the University of Notre Dame and a Master's of Public Administration from the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. John, welcome to Lead the Team. Hey, Ben. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Really is. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah. I've been looking forward to this. This is actually our second call. Yeah, we got a nice prep call, and we just had a lot of fun talking about that. But now we get to dig into the details a little bit. So, super excited. So, you say, that you're a proud parent of four adult kids. Congratulations on that. But you. but you also say that they've helped hone your leadership style. So what do you mean by that? <laughs> we go right to full disclosure, I guess, uh, and personal. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. You know, two ways, I think, really. Um, I have viewed as I have uh, spent more time in management and managing people that it is a lot like parenting and you got to be careful that can be very patronizing but you know i i, I find with kids a, a lot your own and, and those you care for a lot of what time you spend is making sure they have what they need to succeed you know to, mm. to get up to get through the day sure uh, you know, my, my realization as my kids have gotten older you move from the basics to the much more intrinsic uh mm. i love the relationship i have with my older kids it's a lot more time spent asking them, how are you doing? Going a little bit, you know, deeper. Um, and I, I find that in managing people, especially when you're managing other leaders, it's beyond the, do you have what you need right in front of you? And it's more of, what are you trying to accomplish? Can I help you get there? Or are there things in your way? 
And the biggest thing I've learned that's similar to both parenting and managing people is when to just listen. Um, mm. You know, sometimes that they just need to hear themselves flesh it out. Maybe they just need to vent it. And uh, I think as a parent, we're often programmed to say, oh, I can solve that for you. So uh, it, those things have balanced each other really well, especially as my kids have gotten older. I love that. And so since you have adult kids now, you've kind of been through the, at least the majority of the development cycle. I've got an 11 year old and I can say now, uh, I, I can vouch for that because I'm getting to the phase now where listening is more important oftentimes than instruction. And at, at this age, the more instruction I give sometimes the more or, or the less response and the more resistance I get. And so I think that that's such a powerful thing. And I think, and I don't think anyone really told me when I became a parent that, Hey, this was going to help you become a, be, a, a better leader. But when I saw that in your notes, I'm like, that really resonated with me because there's no doubt in my mind, I became more empathetic and there's this focus on uh, development. And when you have kids, you are thinking about their development. You want them to grow up and be independent, think creatively ultimately solve their own problems. I don't know if all parents, sometimes it seems like parents, not all parents take that approach, but I think you and I are simpatico on that. And I think it's, it is such a great thing. There's probably a great book out there that either has been written or needs to be written about how and why parenting can make you a good leader. I agree. The one other little anecdote I give you is I, I do say, you know how you're at home and there's things on the stairs and people just leave it there, even though everyone knows where it goes. So I'm, I'm the guy who always picks stuff up off, off the bottom of the stairs and at least gets it upstairs. I say the same mm -hmm. thing at work. Like, you know, that needs to be picked up. Just, just pick it up. And pick, play it up it pick it up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just pick it up while you're there versus having to come back and do it all over again. And the mess. so it sounds like you never really thought that you'd be in business growing up. What changed Didn't that? What changed? Yeah, I, uh, I had a great childhood. Uh, I had great parents who I got to watch a phenomenal relationship with, including through some really hard things in their families and illness in our families. My parents were educators. My dad was a college professor. He's no longer with us. And my mom uh, taught for the deaf for years, then became an administrator. And then she uh, was a principal at a small uh, Catholic school out east. So in our family, you know, you grew up thinking, Education was really where you'd spend most of your time. My brother was going to be a PhD for a while. My sister is a PhD. She's a clinical psychologist. So there's just this assumption that you would get advanced degrees and teach or research or something. And I tell people I walked into a healthcare economics class uh, in grad school and I never walked out because uh, it just didn't make any sense to me. You know, the, there was self-induced demand. The, Price elasticity, just the not, normal things didn't exist. And uh, truth be told, I was also engaged when I was in grad school. So I, I had some kind of imperatives to, to get going. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife, uh, uh, soon to be wife, was in law school, still my wife, 30 plus years. And I found business actually became something I went into healthcare because that's where I thought I could give, similar to education. And the more I spent time in it, the more fascinating it was. I covered different areas of it. I I managed physician clinics. I worked for insurance companies. I worked on the consulting side for employers. And um, I really enjoyed it. And I thought I could make a difference. And then as I continued in that field, what I enjoyed about business called 
define that larger business, it was really managing. Uh, mm -hmm. That's where I realized that's my education DNA for my family. Um, so I, I, I often told my parents, mm -hmm. you know, what I did, and I don't think they fully understand it. But once I started managing larger teams, they, we, we had a we, we had a lot of similar conversations about their experience and my experience in work. Mm -hmm. So you found the connection there. I did. I, I don't know if I was you eventually became the black sheep of the family family because right. you only became CEO. I, I can sit at the big table now, not at the card table at the holidays. Exactly. <laughs> well, you don't have your doctorate, but you made it to CEO. So we'll let you sit at the big kids table. Okay, Thanks. We'll, we'll use those initials. Fair well, enough. So, so it sounds like that inflection point for you. And I always loved sort of digging into that. What was this economics class? It was it was a it was a healthcare economics class focused on hospital okay. uh, payment. Hmm. Yep. Wow. And so before that, you were just taking different classes, exposing yourself to different things until you until one hit for you, or what was the, what was your process for thinking about well, your own so education? My undergrad degree, you know, you, you stated it, you know, correctly. It was technically rolls under what's called the Great Books Program, so the Great Books mm -hmm. of the Western World. So mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I really studied the history of thought. Uh, mostly from a Western civilization point of view. And so most of the kids and uh, young adults who graduated that pro program either went on to law school because they had been trained to really think holistically uh, or they went into academia. Mm -hmm. So I went into grad school. When I came out of grad school, the market was not good. So uh, liberal arts majors were going to have a hard time finding a job. And I was very interested in urban planning, city development. Um, I had done some internships in the summer on that back home in uh, Westchester, New York. Um, and so I went to grad school to get a public administration degree thinking I'd be a city manager someday. Hmm. So in the four courses you had to take uh, in grad school uh, for your MPA at Syracuse, um, one of them was a, an econ class. And I just, I just happened to decide, well, I'll make it healthcare economics. You know, never really studied that. And it just something clicked. Then right. it just it just, it, I went, I went a very different direction very quickly. Yeah. That's, you know, economics is kind of interesting like that because oftentimes it does reside in the business world and it is more of like a school of thought. And it is, and it's interesting that you maybe approached it from one side and then you ended up going into the business right after that. So, you know, what, what a cool story. Now, one of the things too, that, that we were talking about were skills that you fall back on in different in difficult situations as a leader because a lot of times we we have to rely on like our at, at, in difficult situations whether it's a global pandemic or it's an economic slowdown or whatever it happens to be or, or or an overwhelming great project we have to tackle leaders fall back on where they're most comfortable uh what are those leadership skills that you fall back on in those moments I think there's probably three that I would use and think about the most. One comes from, and we don't really talk about this as much, but it comes from probably my, my background growing up and, and education and with a mm -hmm. liberal art focus is I write things down. You know, when I really sit there and say, you know, whether this is a difficult situation, whether there's some conflict or whether it's a, like, like you just said, it's a new opportunity, it's a challenge. Uh, I, I'm the master. If you saw my desk now, I have pieces of paper and I'm a writer. Uh, I'm an I'm an or, unorganized writer, but it helps me to really kind of mm. put thought down and, and hone it. Um, and what I like about that is it then becomes the basis for how I can communicate that out in a more concise mm. way. I, I have a colleague 
who's who's been a great uh, mentor and co- friend of mine, um, Bart Foster, who uh, says you can always write your SFD, your shitty first draft. Um, so, so I <laughs> Just spend- get it out. Just get it exactly. on the paper. Exactly. So, the so your still- notes. So you're listening in the conversation. They say, John, we have a situation. You get on there. You start. You start taking notes immediately. I do. I do. It's funny. I walk around with, uh, I, I have here, this is the book I always travel with. Uh, okay. And I will even tell people in meetings, especially if it's a, you know, meeting a client or someone I haven't met before, I'll say, Hey, look, I'm taking notes because I look like I'm, I'm very busy. And I think sometimes it's the perception is the higher you move, you know, in your career, you're sitting back, you're listening. Other people are going to take <laughs> yeah. those notes. And ben, tell you, you should be taking the notes for me. I'm the CEO. I, I don't <laughs> take yeah, notes anymore. Maybe I don't, but uh, but I that helps me. Um, it also quite honestly just helps me keep up. What am I to do? You know, mm-hmm. I, I like to walk out of me. I like to go into a meeting saying what's our objective, and I like to leave the meeting with a you know kind of someone, and, and I'm happy to do it myself. Stating here's here's what we agreed upon, what we're going to do. Boom boom boom. So that's mm-hmm. that that skill helps me a lot. Mm-hmm. The two others we talked about were uh, humor and candor. Those are my fallbacks. Um, so how, how would you explain your approach to humor? Because humor can be a gift, an incredible thing, and it can also be difficult to walk that line of, okay, it, who is this going to be funny to and who's it not going to be funny to? Right. So what's it, how, how do you think through that? Or, or maybe even how do you think through it? And if there's any advice in there for other leaders, because I think most people would want to leverage that if they can find a way to do it. Yeah. I, uh, there's been some trial and error on that front and I've been given, yeah. And I've been given some advice in my career of, Hey, you don't always have to be the funny guy or your humor. My humor is very sarcastic. Um, doesn't always fit with other people. And, and, and that, that feedback came from a good place. It wasn't to chastise me. It was, you know, people recognized, early on that hey, you have potential but you need to kind of you know read the room and the situation a little bit different i needed to mature so one is i think you know you have to be comfortable don't force it you know if you're not funny or a comedian type then, then, then don't think you have to go that way um the other thing is i think when meeting first time people is I, I do try to test it a little bit you know i'll uh, and it's usually i'll start by being self-deprecating so it's always easier to test if someone's going to like humor if you do it on yourself. That way, it's a no offense zone to anyone. And you can tell. I mean, if, if you see the smile or you get the chuckle or if you get the, the arm, or the, you know, the kind of the, the implicit arms crossed, then, you know, mm-hmm. okay, we're, we're dealing with a button down person and this is fine. You know, yeah, we'll but, stick with but, the self-deprecating humor. We won't yeah. go there. <laughs> they don't seem to be open to anything else. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I'm a work in progress. So it's always easy to kind of point out some stuff on myself. But but I do find that people shy from humor a little bit um, because they think, you know, especially in intense situations or where there's perceived or real conflict. And uh, I, I'll be, you know, candid. Uh, I use it to disarm, um, not not to gain leverage, but to just try to take some of that heat, tension, air out of the room, because ultimately you're hoping that the conversation you're having, both parties really want to get to a better place, whatever that is, a business deal, an interpersonal relationship, and humor is who I am. So I'm being myself. Hmm. So it comes from an authentic place. 
And it's a great benefit because you're right. If in tense situations, people often narrow their focus, they don't broaden it. And if, yeah. if it, it, they're not as creative, they're not as innovative, and they certainly aren't necessarily in a trusting zone either. And if you're able to create that environment with some humor, uh, I've seen it done very quickly. It's, it's, it's sort of like a performance accelerator, I think, when, when done well. Great way to put it. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. You're, you're, I, I, again, but it had to me, it still, it has to be natural and, um, you know, and, and trial and error is okay too, you know, and the other thing I've learned is there's, there is a line, you know, there is a line of, you know, oh, yes, can, there is a line. There is a line. I, I tend to test that line, but there is a line. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. When was a time when humor didn't work out so well? You know, I think, I don't know if it was a specific, but that feedback session I gave you, I, in my career here at United Healthcare, early on, when we would get together in large meetings, you know, I would be part of that group that was having a great time. Not necessarily, you know, at the bar. I was part of that group too, I'm sure. But, um, you know, and, and there was a lot of throwing back and we were all joking. But what I failed to realize is the perception was being built that, well, that's mostly what I was about. Kind mm. of, you know having a good time, a little goofy, you know, maybe not as serious as some would like us to be. And and I was really fortunate. I had a, a leader, she was the CEO, Elizabeth Windsor, at the time, who who gave me that feedback because I asked for it. And I said, well, what, what do people think? I want to grow in the organization. And she, you know, she had the courage and we had the, the personal relationship. Mm-hmm. She goes, you know, I think people think you're a funny guy, but they may not be taking you that seriously. So broadly, I learned you have to know when to use that. And, you know, business is serious and not everyone wants to be that. Even though they're having a good time with you, they're building an impression. Such a great, I mean, really great advice there. And I can totally see that. Some people, especially if it's new to their culture, and the culture may not be the organization, it might be to the team that you're working with. And they're used to being very serious. I mean, maybe you're working with the accounting group and the accounting's People are all busy. I'm not saying all accounts are like that, but there might be more serious groups. And so there's a real art to being able to read the room, like you said, and finding ways to inject your own personality and humor. And after they get to know you, and I think I think there's also a piece of it, they've seen you perform, they've seen you deliver, they're going to say, oh, you know, we get John's approach now. But when you're new to the game and they're just meeting you, might say, man, this is really serious here. We can, there's no space. I, boy, you nailed it. And again, yeah, not to <laughs> broad brush a whole kind of important business function, but yeah, when I went into major financial decisions, we we we, we turned down the humor and you know we looked a little bit more buttoned up. Um, and you're exactly right. It, it does take time too, and you want people to think of you holistically that you have mm-hmm. skills number mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Great, great, some great insights. I uh, really want to call out what you said about starting with self-deprecating humor. I think if a leader is looking to do that, that's a, that, like you said, that's a safer zone to yeah. start with. Um, so it's February. So for those listeners, you may be listening a while from now, this is February, 2023. 
but you're starting to get into employee and annual review season. Woohoo! What's been <laughs> your most memorable annual review? Oh boy. Um, yeah, that's a season that, uh, not everyone looks forward to. Strikes trying, fear in the hearts of many. Well, I'm trying to take that mantra of not, I have to do this, but I get to do this. I get to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, earlier in my career, uh, probably the beginning of my consulting career, um, I had a unique skill in managed care that at that time, not, not a lot of people had. And so it was great. And I was doing well with Watson Wyatt now, Willis Towers Watson. And I had my review. And um, my uh, manager at the time, and who's still a friend, I just talked to him over the holidays, Tom Walrope, since retired, gave me a a very good review. So good that I kind of sat there saying, okay, well, it's great to hear good things. And I pushed him a little bit, saying, is there something I should work on? And he's like, no, you're doing great. Keep it at. And I said, okay, well, then I guess you need to pay me more. And you know when you're when you're in your late twenties, you got a little little edge, I guess. And there's a little uh, humor. Yeah, but a little, maybe yeah. not. Yeah, well, no, I was, I was, I was, I was paid fairly. And um, <laughs> and he kind of looked at me and I said, seriously, Tom, give me, you know, give me something that there's got to be something. And he goes, okay. And so I, yeah, I had to push for it, but the feedback he gave me and it stuck with me was, and, and this is going to sound very immodest. I don't mean it to be. He goes, you're very quick. You 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 understand and get the point quickly. Not everyone is as quick as you in in understanding something. Because, however, it does not mean that they won't get it or don't fully understand it. And I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm, what, are, what are you telling me? What do I? He's like, you need to learn how to be patient with how people assimilate information. Hmm. And it helped me right then and there because, again, I, I had an understanding of something that was really developing at the time. This is in the early mid '90s. Managed care was really coming on. Mm-hmm. But what was fascinating to me, Ben, is I've reflected back on that. I actually shared that with Tom uh, over the holidays. We hadn't talked in a while. And I sent him a note saying, hey, I'm thinking of you. Because as I grew and managed more people, I, I, you know, I, had, I, I almost was recognizing both the physical or the implicit foot tapping of when I would have a conversation with someone saying, come on, let's get there. You know, come on. We, I, I, I talked to you about this. And what the patients taught me is learning styles are very different. Mm. And it doesn't, it's not a sign of intelligence. It's not a sign of will or skill. And I recognized if I sat back, back to the listening part about being a parent, that um, by being patient, even if you understand something, letting people get there, not only is it healthy for them, but much more importantly to me, I realized they got there in different ways that added to the, the idea, the solution, the discussion so much more robustly than my, I got there because I went down the expressway. Mm. So it seems a little counterintuitive in a corporate environment where speed is often rewarded uh, and beating your deadline is rewarded and it's, it's, it's perceived as superior. Uh, when's a time for you that you saw that payoff, this more patient approach? Um, great question. I think we had some challenges with how our customers were viewing us from a, we ended up starting to use a net promoter score methodology at mm-hmm. a B2B level. Yep. Um, actually in our industry, we were the first ones who were doing that. So not at the consumer level, but at a client business level. And we were trying to figure out how do we, how do you know, look to your point, like in corporate, how do you, how do we get our numbers to be better? Uh, so we can use that number and say, people, our satisfaction is high. It, it would work internally. I get some leaders off my back. 
It would, mm-hmm. it went into our pay and reward system. So there was, there was a lot of motivation to get mm-hmm. this figured out and fit. And I, I had some analytical people on the team who really wanted to be more scientific about it. And that's kind of how we ventured into the net promoter score system. And I was like, look, we, we, we know we need to get our satisfaction from, you know, A to Z. We, we, you know, we all, we all agree it has to move up and let's go. Here's some quick things because we knew what they clients were particularly unhappy about. But by by having other people saying, well, I want to think about this a little bit more. I don't know if that's just the answer. They created this methodology that went so much deeper hmm. that and it actually helped us at a relationship level. So rather than getting tactical, you know, information, you know, am I doing well here, here and here? What we got was, hey, you're a trusted advisor. We have we have hmm. discussions with you that we don't have with others. And. You know, I, look, there was pressure to your point um, within our business to just improve the relationships. But by allowing people to kind of roll around in it and think a little bit more deeply, skill sets they brought to the table I didn't have. We created, it's actually still a brag point within National Council United Healthcare. They're, they're killing it. Uh, they have probably some of the highest client satisfaction hmm. in the industry. Wow, cool story. It is, and it, by making that space, and you probably, I suspect, had to push back a little bit on the powers that be, whether it's a board or the other executive that say, hey, get this done. You know, John, get it done. And it could easily, have, it sounds like it turned into a box checking exercise. Okay, net promoter score. But because you guys are able to negotiate, I guess, more time for yourself and you were more patient with the team, you're able to get what it sounds like a, a bigger, more longer term benefit for the business versus something that might've been like a quick hit for a, for a stock price. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like I said, it would have hit the, the pressure you felt above, you know, the thing though, too, is hey, hey look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest. It, it really was a team effort. There also was support from leadership, but that was part of the process too. Um, I had, I reported mm-hmm. that to a great colleague, now friend, Mike Mateo, and he, he was supportive of it. I mean, and, and he was, you know, you have to enlist your leadership into that kind of change. You have to. And I'm a big fan of change management being a process. And so you kind of have to build that willing coalition. Yes, not easy, but no. important for leaders to think about because it is annual review season and people are going to be hearing this and they're going to be thinking about also their goals for for this year. And exactly. Knowing, being able to say, "Hey, this is a time we need to go fast," versus this versus another one where we need to slow down, we need to be more, maybe give our time, give ourselves time to be more thoughtful and reflective. Uh, for the listeners, we're talking about and John works in a pretty darn big company <laughs> with three hundred and thirty thousand people, and I think. What it, and so it's interesting thinking about what we just talked about, but also thinking about the people listening here. Advice for navigating or being successful in huge organizations. Wow, that's another really good question. Um, you know, you asked me earlier, you know, I didn't view myself as going into business, I definitely didn't view myself going into a very large. Um, complex uh, corporate organization. Um, and I willingly came into United Healthcare um, because I wanted to become a general manager, um, something I didn't think I could really do 
uh, in consulting at that time for me personally, where I was in my career, I was more of an individual contributor. Mm -hmm. So large organizations, there's so many things you can do. So the benefit to that is it gives you opportunities. And I think, uh, you know, workforces that are now kind of coming into that, you know, and I, I hate to use gen whatever, um, because I think that kind of broad brushes, but I, I am seeing people want to have different experiences and maybe a shorter time frame than, than I did and people before mm. me growing up. You stay at the certain role, you've got competent. Um, so I think large corporations are very beneficial for that because you can move around and try different things, providing you have know, a track record. The thing that I find, to answer the question a little bit more precisely, the thing that I find is people say, oh, well, you know, big company politics. And I really try to encourage people to not think about the politics or, or view it as political. Mm. It's it, the way an organization, uh, its culture, its operating system functions. And you really want to learn that rather than roll your eyes and say, well, this is just political. It's who you know. It's what you've done. Because I think if you take the time to understand, well, why are people doing what they're doing? Why do those relationships exist? Why does she seem to be really connected to him? Um, I think it really helps you understand what individuals are trying to achieve and how they then fit into the larger framework. And we have a, a, a really good saying. We, we adopted a whole set of values and cultural principles a decade plus ago in the United Health Group. And it was, it was really helpful. It really took the company from where it was growing fast to the next level. And one of the many that I like is assume positive intent. And it's something I have to remind myself to do because I can tend to be judgmental and I'm cynical and at times. And but the assumed positive intent, I think, works really well in a large corporation, because instead of saying, well, why is that division doing this to us? Or why is, you know, he going around the back and it becomes, well, what are they trying to achieve? Mm. And why why he or she feel the need to do that? And so what I tell people in large corporations is really study it. Um, a little worried in the current environment of all work from home, you don't get a chance to have less experienced people just come to a meeting and say, sit there and watch, you know, and then we'll talk after. But uh, in large organizations, learn, learn how they're structured, learn where power sits, why it, why the power sits there, because power is not a bad thing. Um, power is an institutional opportunity for you to help get the things you need to get done. Mm. Uh, and don't view it as something that you have to, you know, deal with. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah, some, yeah, some great advice there. I think that the, the more people you have in a company, the more structure you usually need because you're just wielding yep. just a lot more stuff to do. And I think when you, when you, when you walk in or maybe you've been there, if you, or if you've been in a company for a while, you're not really clear on what the structures are. And who reports to who? Um, what's some advice do you have for people who are like, you know what? I don't really get it because we have a hundred thousand, three hundred thousand people here. Where do I start to understand the power, the relationships, the structure? Yeah, uh, you know the company puts a lot of it out there. Usually, you know, if you spend time on the on the company's intranet, if you spend time. Read the annual report. Read a 10K. I mean, you know, I, I've told that to my kids, some who are now in companies. And, you know, I, I we weren't on the phone, but I could feel the eye roll from there, you know. 
But um, I think it really is important if you want to be part of an organization and understand what it's trying to achieve, you know, especially if it's publicly held company, they tell you and they will put it out there. So that that's one kind of simple, easy thing. Spend some time researching, you know, go into the subsections uh, of the Internet, you know, that uh, for the company that you're interested in. And, you know, look up. I often whenever I talk to someone new, I will very quickly see, well, OK, where are they in the org chart? Not again, because I'm. You know, where are they in the pecking order? I'm like, oh, who are they connected to? Mm. Who do they know that I probably have worked with? The benefit of now just shy of 20 years, 19 and you know, about 10 months. Um, I understand this organization pretty well, but I'm still to the point. So I would tell them, take some time to research. And then the second piece is ask. Mm. You know, what I find fascinating is, and, and it's happening more, which I think is fantastic. All of people saying, hey, you don't know me. I recently joined United Healthcare or United Health Group. Um, I was given your name. I, I'd love to talk to you for, you know, 15, 30 minutes. And I immediately say, absolutely, I'll get you on my calendar. And these are the kind of conversations we yeah. end up having. I'm like, I just need to understand what you guys do because I'm going to work with you. Ask, mm-hmm. be curious. I, I, that sounds really simple, Ben, but not, not a lot of people do it. I think that's great insight for people because it, don't just go to the meeting. I mean, I, I make so much sense. If you go, if you're, if you're going to go to a meeting this afternoon, pull up the calendar, look who's invited exactly, and try to figure out who all those people are. And uh, it, it may take you a few more extra minutes, but man, it's going to help you navigate it. Maybe go, I was thinking maybe go the extra step and look them up on LinkedIn, hundred percent. see what they're 100%. posting about, find something. Hey, Ben, you know, I grew up in business development. And so now, I mean, there's not a meeting. I, I, had, a, I had a prospect dinner last night and mm-hmm. you're darn right. I looked up people on LinkedIn and then went a couple layers deep and I shared that information with a couple of my colleagues who are going to be at the table. And I looked at the company and where their investors were. Why wouldn't we do the same thing? You you, you, you said it beautifully. Why wouldn't you, as you go into a meeting, you're a newer person, hey, meeting with three people I've never met at United. And, you know, I have colleagues like, yeah, but then they'll know I looked at them on LinkedIn. I'm like, good. You'll show them that, that you were interested in them. Not, oh, yeah. Okay. So it seems like bringing that business development approach to developing your own personal career and experience inside your company. So it's it's just, yeah, like it's it's okay to look up someone you're in a sales perspective, but not you're going to go to the meeting. Well, then, and, and I like to think like, like really own the fact that they can tell you're looking at their profile because you're like, I care. Exactly. And, and nine times out of 10, you're going to find some like, oh, I didn't know, you know, you worked at J&J and did you know so-and-so? And, you know, you, you get a rapport going very quickly. Great, great success strategy. All right. Well, John, wrapping this up, man, we've touched on a lot of different things uh, and, and it's been a delight. Uh, what's your parting thought for our listeners today? Parting thought for the listeners. Well, I'm someone who really does like managing people. And I find uh, at this point in my career that having conversations, and we use a lot of words, Ben, coaching, mentoring, but but if you can be approachable as a leader and really engage with people in conversations about what they want to achieve, I find I've developed friendships that I thought I never kind of assumed I'd have. I always assumed you'd have that work-life separation. And uh, it's one of the things that I talk about with with my wife saying, boy, whenever I stop working, 
I want to make sure I cultivate some of the relationships I keep have because they're friends. And my point is, as a leader, not every conversation is a transaction. Not every conversation is a development. Not every conversation is for you to solve something. Some conversations are not just listening, but they actually build a relationship. And that's what's gotten us through some of the hardest business challenges we had, is I know I like this person. We, we've seen each other at our best, at our worst, and, uh, and we can laugh about it. Thanks, John. Thank you. It was great talking to you. I enjoyed it. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.